Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday and let's get into Season 5. Before we start this podcast, I just want to make a quick content warning. This episode does talk about child sexual abuse and child sexual abuse material. Dr. Michael Salter is the Scientia Associate Professor of Criminology at the School of Social Science at University of New South Wales and an expert in child sexual exploitation and gendered violence. Michael applies critical and feminist theory to the study of complex trauma with a focus on intersections with technology. Michael sits on the board of directors of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. He is an advisor to the Australian Office of the eSafety Commissioner, the Canadian Centre for Child Protection and White Ribbon Australia. He is Associate Editor of Child Abuse Review and sits on the editorial board of the Journal of Trauma and Dissociation. In today's episode, we talk about policy failure, the lack of preparedness to recognise and respond to the impact of child sexual abuse and exploitation, and a whole range of sector updates. Welcome, Michael. Michael Salter, thanks so much for joining me and spending some time with me at the conference. Appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. Michael, do you want to give our listeners a bit of background, how you ended up in the role that you're doing at the moment? I'd love to hear how it all started for you. Yeah, look, it's a bit of a story and, and it wasn't really planned, but in my sort of late teens, I moved out of home, going to uni, moved into a share house and there were a number of other people there. It was one of those two bedroom share houses where five people were living and one of them happened to be sort of a young woman who over the course of time became quite a good friend and she disclosed a pretty serious history of child sexual exploitation in the 80s and the 90s that included the manufacture of child sexual abuse material and it was all pretty pretty t- and so that's really how it started I I studied my first degree in politics and I actually worked for the Labor Party for a couple of years in my early 20s but at the same time I was sort of watching her just really struggle there was no mental health services for someone like her. There was still quite a significant safety risk. So the men that had abused her as a kid, there were some police investigations into them and some of that was hitting the front page of the newspaper at the time and they were pretty keen to make sure that nobody was was speaking. So there were these quite acute instances where she was assaulted in order to keep herself quiet. And again, law enforcement wasn't very helpful, couldn't understand what we were talking about. So, you know, we had a couple of years in sort of my mid-20s trying to stabilise that situation and once that came to an end and I was sort of a bit unsure what I was supposed to do with what we'd been through and she said to me, you know, you're pretty good at this, you should do it for a job. And so I went back to school and got a PhD and that's what I've done ever since. PhD in criminology? 
So funnily enough, it was a PhD in public health. So one of my supervisors was in medicine, the other one was in law. And there's a few reasons for that. I'd been working around public policy and public health at the time anyway. So I knew one of my supervisors, but also there really wasn't anyone in the country that specialized in the area. So there was really no one that could supervise the project. And so I was just lucky to find a couple of people that were kind of willing to humor me for three or four years for a pretty difficult project, basically. But yeah, so technically I graduated with a PhD in medicine. What year are we roughly talking here? So I finished my PhD, graduated in 2010. Okay. So yeah, this is work I've been doing for about 15 years professionally. At the same time as doing my PhD, I, I was elected to the board of what's now the Blue Knot Foundation, but back then was adult surviving child abuse because they were really there in the organization nationally that were able to... I think hold a situation like this, ASCA or now Blue Knot was really just supporting a whole lot of people in the community who were really struggling, who had histories like my friend had. And so it was a really good home for me. I was on the board of directors for about three or four years. And that was a bit of a crash course as well, just in the degree of policy failure around this. It was pretty startling how wide the gap was between the known data and the evidence on the impact of child sexual abuse and then the total lack of preparedness of health and welfare systems to actually address that and you know and the struggles of engaging with with police as well especially around historical matters or complex matters of sexual violence definitely being on the board of ASCA was a bit of a baptism by fire in terms of just realizing how unprepared the Australian state was to recognize and address the sorts of things that we'd, we'd been through. Your friend that that experienced that during her childhood, is this something that's only exploded since the internet or was this, you're talking about early, was it 80s and 90s? Are we seeing that there was, it was in its infancy back then as far as the child sexual abuse material being? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I mean, historically, you know, child sexual exploitation, there's always been demand for it. And, you know, very significant criminal cases in the 1970s, less well documented here in Australia, but certainly the FBI was yeah. um, uncovering the commercial production of child sexual abuse material in the United States. You know, there were very high profile cases in the early to mid 70s in the US that included the deaths of significant numbers of children who'd been abducted or otherwise used in the production of child sexual abuse material. It was actually those cases that really triggered a campaign of law reform around child sexual abuse first in the United States and that then spread to Australia and other jurisdictions by the late 70s because child sexual abuse material wasn't specifically criminalised as a form of illegal content. Prior to the late 70s, early 80s, Child sexual abuse material was widely available in Australia. You could buy it over the counter and there's a, a letter to the editor in the Australian Journal of Medicine in the early 80s from a paediatrician just saying, look, I walked into a store and I asked for it and they sold it to me. So I think our collective memory on something like child sexual abuse material is quite poor. You know, the internet has absolutely made access to the material far easier. It's made distribution far easier but in a sense, it just called our attention and forced us to pay attention to a problem that we'd neglected for 20 or yeah. 30 years at that point. So it's, it's always been there. It was just different modes of getting it out and distributing it. That's right. And it's also particular kinds of perpetrators. You know, there are, there are certainly men who are very dedicated to child sexual abuse. And why on earth would they be solo offenders? You know, that is the primary 
their primary preoccupation and it should be no surprise that they know other offenders, that they collaborate with other offenders and, you know, that's a pattern that goes back decades and decades. We see that prosecutions for this are increasing each year. Is that because the law is, is getting better or the technology is getting better to catch these people? What, what, what's driving that? I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, certainly in Australia over the last five years, there's been significant investment at the Commonwealth level around the investigation and prosecution of this activity. And so we're seeing 50% increases in arrests and prosecutions for Commonwealth child sexual exploitation offences, which are all of the online offences. You know, we're seeing 50% increases in reports of child sexual abuse material to the Safety Commission. So, you know, this reflects, yeah, increased public awareness, increased government activity. Myself and my team have been funded by Westpac to do a survey of Australian men. We're currently surveying 1,500 Australian men and also 1,500 men in the US and the UK, respectively. It's an anonymous survey and we ask them, you know, have you ever intentionally looked at sexual abuse material? Have you ever looked at pornography with people under the age of 18? At the moment, it's coming in at around 2% of all men and that's pretty consistent with the perpetration questions. We've asked them, have you ever, you know, paid a child online for sexual activity, we're getting about 2%. Pretty alarmingly, when we asked these men, would you ever do certain things if you knew you couldn't get caught, we're starting to see about 5% of men who would be willing to engage in online offences against children if they knew they couldn't get caught. We have about 5% of men in this survey at the moment and we do need to clean the data up. It's all, it's, it's happening at the moment. But we've got about 5% of men indicating that they are worried about their sexual feelings towards children. And mate, is this all going on in the dark web or is this just in plain sight on just the normal internet sites and anyone can access? Yeah, another really good question. So, I mean, the dark web provides a forum for offenders to network with one another. We're looking at you know, the majority of traffic on the dark web is child abuse traffic. Some of these forums will have hundreds of thousands or millions of, of members. But it's important to recognise wow. that when it comes to images or videos, the dark web is a terrible way, very slow way to distribute heavy, dense graphic files. The vast majority of child sexual abuse material is stored on the clear web, but it's not stored on the dark web. It's not encrypted. It's sitting in, you know, commercial servers and file hosting services all around the world. And what offenders on the dark web do is they, they share the link so the link is shared on the dark web, but the videos and the images, the actual file is not sitting on the dark web. And it's important for people to understand because this material is sitting on the clear web, it's sitting in commercial providers who are technically lawful businesses who are hosting and enabling the distribution of this content. And so when they click on the link in the dark web, we no one can track who's actually, even though it's getting it from the clear web, no one can track who's actually watching it? So certainly the hosting provider on the clear web will have data about who is downloading that content. They have no legal obligation to disclose that. Often they're domiciled in jurisdictions that, you know, you might require a court order to release that information and courts may not be well disposed to those requests. Nonetheless, frankly, a lot of it's hosted in the United States. A lot of it is hosted in the Netherlands. A lot of it is hosted in countries that we have good diplomatic relations with. And those, those countries are hosting images and videos of Australian children being abused. And I think that there is a role for the Australian government to quite proactively say, these are our kids and we know they're our kids. These are prosecuted cases. You know, you cannot, you cannot host this content of Australian citizens. 
So, so it's happening in Australia, but yet they're they're projecting it from a different country. Yeah, that's right. So in Australia, it's actually no hosting provider that's in the jurisdiction of Australia has any pornographic content at all. Right. It's a lit like pornography is denied. It's denied classification in Australia. It's why pre-internet to get access to adult pornography, it would come in through the ACT and then it was distributed out through funny networks of liberated bookstores because actually pornography is quasi-legal in Australia. So no internet service provider in Australia has adult content what that also means is that it is extremely rare that the safety commissioner will ever detect child sexual abuse material hosted within the Australian Territory. What it means is that a lot of the reports that Australians are making about child sexual abuse material, and they might make that report to the Australian Federal Police or they might make it to the safety commissioner, it's essentially being letterboxed out to an overseas jurisdiction because it's not hosted here. So it, it poses significant challenges for us in terms of how do we make sure that we are firstly protecting Australian victims and we do have, you know, Australian victims who are very highly traded and their images and videos are widely circulated. But how do we make sure that, you know, we are protecting the Australian community from content that is illegal to access in Australia? And the reason that other countries are able to play it or just distribute that content is because they're... They're, they don't have the technology or they don't, they're not as – their laws don't – their laws allow it or the loopholes that allow them to do that and get away with it in those or they just don't have the resources? What's that? So technology companies don't have an obligation under law to proactively screen and prevent the distribution of child sexual abuse material. They're only obliged to remove that material if it is reported to them. So it's a passive rather than a reactive uh, system. Now there is free technology that screens for known child sexual abuse material. That would prevent this material from hitting their servers. The majority of technology companies do not implement that, that software and simply because it's an additional cost to them and they're not required to do that by law. And so that's the situation that we're in. And I think people don't realise just how laissez-faire the technology sector is because you know, every time they're interviewed about it, you know, the, the, the meta representative or the TikTok representative or whoever, they will tell you, we have a zero tolerance approach to child sexual exploitation. And yet they do not do basic things that would yeah. prevent this material from being distributed on their services. And often they're pursuing business decisions such as seeking to encrypt their service that would effectively create a black box for offenders to sexually exploit children. Yes, they're almost empowering that behaviour, aren't they, really? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, at a certain point we have to look at, you know, 50% increases in the availability of child sexual abuse material every year for 20 years and we have to look at the technology sector. These are large yeah. corporations. These are private companies. You know, we talk about the internet like we talk about the bush or a desert or the sky. We talk about the internet. But the internet is just a series of interconnected infrastructure and services and platforms that are all privately owned and have chosen over the last 25 years to take no action or insufficient action to keep kids safe. Now, I do a lot of work with people like my friends where the worst moments of their life have been recorded and distributed online. People have no idea what their lives are like. You know, They have no idea what it's like to walk down the street and be recognised. Someone recognises you on the street from an image that was made of you being abused as a child. These are the sorts of things that child sexual abuse material survivors, you know, they do face every day. And 
until very recently, you know, these contingencies were just secret. You know, they weren't considered a priority for business or, frankly, for policymakers. We've been through a tough couple of years with COVID. I assume that that only that only sort of gave fuel to the fire of of the child sexual abuse material and and the amount of material that was being done and distributed and watched has there been an uptick in that over those couple of years yeah that's absolutely right so you know offenders were locked down like we all were locked down we broadly saw an increase actually just in pornography use so lawful pornography use but illegal content also spiked now i was funded by the safety commissioner we did some work in 2020 on the dark web just actually looking at what offenders were saying about lockdown you know what was the impact of lockdown on the lives of offenders on the dark web. And there was some interesting stuff there. There was a lot of offenders complaining that actually their access to children offline had been cut off for those guys that were um, abusing kids uh, outside the home, so maybe in the community or, you know, in an institution. There was a lot of complaints actually from these guys that they couldn't continue to abuse those kids. But what we also know is that Some of those men were then on lockdown with kids. There was an increase in reports of child sexual abuse by kids being made to children's helpline during this period of time because, you know, kids found themselves, you know, locked down in in homes with men where previously they'd been able to get away from them. They could go to school, those sorts of things. And we also saw a lot of guys pushed onto the dark web who previously probably wouldn't have had time. And we saw a lot of sharing of strategies. So one of the real issues with the dark web is that these guys use it to share perpetration strategies with each other. And so I think we're going to be living with the aftermath of that for quite a while, which is we've got an upskilled online offender community that we wouldn't have had prior to COVID. And I mean, it makes you sick just thinking about this stuff that it's, but it's real and it's happening. Yeah, look, absolutely. And the other thing that's important to recognize is, you know, the majority of the ways that these guys access the dark web is through the Tor browser. So a particular browser that you can use to access hidden services. Again, it's a company limited by guarantee. It's a board of directors. It gets funding from the US Department of Defense, as well as from the private sector and The great irony is that the US Department of Justice spends millions of dollars trying to crack child sex offences that are facilitated by the dark web and yet it's funded by the Department of Defence on the other side of things. So, again, there's actually lots of low-hanging fruit here. There's lots of leverage points that we could pull to put pressure on companies and governments to take better action. But I think until very recently the public was pretty much in the dark about this. And I think the technology sector really relied on the technical illiteracy of governments. You know, the tech sector would just come out with all of this sort of programming babble that politicians couldn't understand. The great news is that governments are, I think, wise to that strategy now and they've got their own cyber capabilities and they're able to speak back to the tech sector. And I think that's been an important development. Yeah, I mean, it's... It doesn't make sense for them to want to chase it down and try and stop this, cease this behaviour, but then also fund it and support it in another way. It just doesn't make any sense. But we're saying that we're almost, I mean, we're going to see some change, do you feel, coming up in the next couple of years? And do you feel the speed of change is happening quicker? Absolutely. You know, we've seen a, a real change in the posture of the Australian. You know, we do have a really unique resource in the eSafety Commission and they are kind of a world first and I think a global leader in a, in a comprehensive response to online abuse and online safety. 
we're seeing the European Commission move very quickly and very definitively and in a way where, you know, they are willing to confront the commercial interests of the tech sector. You know, they've got, you know, rules around data sovereignty that mean that you can't just, you know, commodify and harvest data from the European people and take it to San Francisco and sell it for profit. And when those provisions were put in place, you know, Meta said, well, you know, well, that's, that's it, we're pulling out of Europe. And, you know, the European Commission said, fine, pull out, you know, they don't the, care. Was it a bluff? Did <laughs> it they pull bluff? Out? Yeah. Of course it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's terrifying for the tech sector. And I think the business model of the technology sector is changing. You know, Facebook is struggling for profitability. Twitter's struggling for profitability. You know, there is a real move away from the very exploitative and extractive practices that have made billionaires out of, tech company executives but you know we're at a point now where the majority of Australian children will reach the age of 18 having experienced some kind of online sexual harm you know they will have been solicited by a stranger they will have been asked for a sexual image they will have been sexually harassed online that's become normal and it's really important that we recognize it's not normal you know this is a product of again unsafe services that are run for a profit by people that are you know, not necessarily acting in our interests. Well, I mean, it's tough work. It's a serious subject and it's really sick. And the fact that it's, I mean, we talk about Australian children and, and, and that, but I mean, the fact that any children around the world are being subjected to this and, I mean, it, it does. Do you think it does take that global approach that we need multiple countries coming together to try and, to try and ban this stuff and, and make sure we stamp it out and say it's not okay? Is that what you think? Because, I mean, the data is coming from all over the place, so we really need a cohesive approach to this, do you think? I think that's right. It, this has to be a matter of global partnership. I think in the past, company, countries have been competing with one another to present themselves in a way that's as economically competitive for the tech sector as possible. I think they've been so focused on the economic potential of the technology sector that you know, they've really been operating across purposes, you know, trying to be as friendly a jurisdiction as they. I think the political capital that can be gained from that over the last five years has diminished considerably. And just from an electoral point of view, I think governments have realised that when they front up to big tech and when they confront big tech with the harms that it's engaged in, actually the public responds really well. The public is sick of the entitlement and the impunity of big technology companies and monopolies. And increasingly that's what they are, they're monopolies. When was the last time that you saw an exciting tech startup? You know, when was the last time that there was some, you know, bright and shiny new app that changed your life? It's been a while. And that's because we're now in a stranglehold of kind of monopolistic practices. So we are seeing increased coordination between government, increased policy exchange. I think the real stumbling block remains the United States for a couple of reasons and that includes that you know Silicon Valley is there the technology industry has a very powerful lobby there and the United States continues to advance a lot of voluntary codes voluntary principles that the technology sector says they will implement and then three or four years later they haven't so we are hoping to see more rigorous legislation passed in the United States next year. But it really is a matter of of governments prioritising this and being willing to take the political hit. Do you think they're going through this phase similar to us where it's becoming more, the public are becoming more aware of what's actually going on and and enough's enough and they're starting to get some momentum as well over there? 
I think that's right. I think also the media has stepped up significantly. We've had huge issues with technology journalism where it's just been fan journalism. You know, it's tech journalists have been fans of technology and they go to the launch of the latest iPhone and, you know, they write rapturously about the latest AAA video game and the latest gaming console. And frankly, that's been tech journalism for a long time. And over the last, again, probably three or four years, that paradigm is broken and we have journalists who are much more critical of the sector and really interested in the political economy and really interested in the hypocrisies of the tech sector. And that's important because I think for a long time, journalists were willing to look the other way when it came to the harms of technology, particularly against children. And I think it was a lot of access journalism as well. You know, if you didn't report in a friendly way on the tech sector, then you didn't get the big interview. So it's been good to see that change. And we're, Michael, we're in a point where we're seeing, I guess, the use of data over the internet for everyday use just almost go past that line where it's been efficiency and trying to use so it's smart and it's intelligent but now it's getting to a point where it's almost scary all this stuff that's out there and what they can do and what they know about you and how they follow you and 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 listen to you or whatever it's sort of bordering on the line of now sort of scary and it just sort of feels like it's gone a bit too far and when we look in australia over the last couple of years we are seeing massive cyber attacks against substantial corporate interests whereby yours and my data is just being harvested and sold. You know, my university now has multi-multi-factor authentication. You know, back in the day I could just put in a password. You know, that's not enough. You know, my computer is authorising my phone, which is authorising my everything else because we're starting to realise actually our data matters And there are actors out there that have a deep and abiding interest in that data. So I think to a certain extent, you know, we've kind of opened our eyes up and we've realised that, you know, the internet is not the playground that we thought it was. You know, we're playing for real money at this point and there are real lives on the line. So it's great to see that growing public awareness and the insistence that governments do their job and make sure that we're safe because that's what we rely on them for. Michael, if we look at the children point of view i mean is trafficking part of this uh, whole thing getting kids people taking kids unwillingly internationally and or even within australia and and doing terrible things to them is that part of this surely that's some sort of an indicator that it's also feeding this thing it's useful to think about child sexual abuse now as being technology facilitated you know it's rare to come across a domestic violence case that doesn't have some tech aspect to it just because technology is so ubiquitous in our lives that's true also of child sexual abuse so a lot of patterns of child sexual abuse have been impacted by technology when we look at sexual abuse you know within the family when we look at fathers who sexually abuse their daughters you know those guys now are able to contact other offenders they're able to share that content in a way that they wouldn't have been able to in the past so we're seeing those sorts of established patterns of sexual abuse being changed by technology we're also seeing you know new forms of abuse emerge so a significant issue over the last couple of years has been organised crime syndicates in Africa and Southeast Asia whose business model is to elicit, pretend to be a teenager, elicit a nude image from a teenage boy and then once he's sent the dick pic, you blackmail him for money. And, I mean, the AFP is saying, you know, we're dealing with 100 cases of this a day in Australia. Yeah, thank you. It's been increasing for two years. You know, 
this is, in a sense, a new form of child sexual exploitation that's directly tech-facilitated. It couldn't exist without the technology. So on one hand, we've got existing patterns of abuse that are changing and amplifying because of technology, and then we've got these new, quite kinetic forms of child abuse that are enabled by technology. They wouldn't exist without it. And I think one of the issues from a policy point of view is we've been used to thinking about child sexual abuse as something that we can just, you know, have a standard response to that's going to be relevant for five or ten years. If you look at financial sexual extortion, it's only been happening for 18 months. And the offenders are changing. Like as we adapt to them and as we try and disrupt their operations, they're moving around us now we don't have the sort of policy architecture that we need to respond to a kinetic threat like that because we don't think about child sexual abuse as a threat to national security. But that's exactly what financial sexual extortion is. And if we're not careful, we're going to lose kids. You know, I know that we've had suicides in Canada. We've had a spate of suicides in the United States because of these organised crime groups. And it's important that we're not asleep at the wheel in Australia. It's scary, isn't it? When we look at the, I mean, I, uh, you can assume that most of the people offending are men. That, that's correct. Yeah, that's right. You, you also talk about the non-offending partners and the impact on, on the wives and the children in, in most cases. Tell us about that and the impact on them as it relates to domestic family violence. So over the last couple of years, I've been doing quite a lot of work with Partner Speaks. So Partner Speaks a support agency based in Melbourne, although they operate nationally. And they were established probably about 15 years ago for the non-offending partners, ex-partners, family of child sexual abuse material offenders. And, you know, really for these women, they have absolutely no idea. They don't know that their partner is looking at this content. They may come across it, so they may come across it on his computer and then they make a report. Or the first time they find out is when the police knock on the door you know, and, and, and arrest the offender. And often she, she may be a suspect as well during the initial phases of the investigation. So as I mentioned earlier, I mean, we're, we've got increased arrests, you know, 50% increases in arrests for these offences at a Commonwealth level. At the time of arrest, actually, up to half of these guys have a partner, you know, a lot of them are living with a child and it's incredibly stigmatising to be the partner or the ex-partner of a child sex offender. So we've been doing work with these women around just their experiences of the investigation, the prosecution, the dissolution of the marriage. They face all of the same challenges that any woman does yeah. when an abusive partner leaves. But what's been really alarming for us is that there's a proportion of those women where the relationship with abusive and violent to begin with or violence sexual violence coercive control and so when the police knock on the door and the relationship falls apart her pathway out of that relationship looks a lot like other domestic violence victims but because the investigation was a child sex investigation often the domestic violence against her is not really being detected by police he's typically not charged with any offense against her because that's not the nature of the inquiry into his offending behavior so we're really keen to start thinking and exploring this overlap between child sexual abuse and domestic violence because what we know is that actually the majority of men who are offending in the home they they are violent against their female partner if they have one and we also know that domestic violence perpetrators are significantly more likely than other men to commit sexual offenses against children but until now you know, those responses from a policy point of view and a practice point of view have been quite siloed and distinct. 
it is alarming when you think about them as secondary victims, isn't it, of, of this abuse and the embarrassment. I mean, in some instances where they don't know anything about it, I mean, that's, it would be hard to deal with that. And, uh, and I know you've been through a, a process where you've surveyed women, you've surveyed and interviewed domestic violence workers as well to come up with trying to better understand this and examine the impact of this on them. Red flags for this, what are we, what are we looking at here? So interestingly, for the women that we spoke to, the thing that they all knew about before they knew about the offending was how compulsive his pornography consumption was. So these were guys that were looking at porn for hours every day and in some cases like six hours, eight hours a day. The pornography they were consuming, if the woman was aware of it, was also really extreme and people probably don't realise this but, you know, for guys that are collecting child sexual abuse material, you know, they've typically got other sorts of illegal or quasi-legal content, including bestiality content, really extreme violent pornography. So often that's what she knew about before she knew about the illegal material. She knew that he was looking at porn a lot and that he was also, and again, this was common for everyone that we spoke to, he had like a secret life. He put a lot of effort into, he was very secretive around the computer. Sometimes he would organise his whole life so that, you know, she worked day shift, but he worked a night shift. And it meant, <coughs> it meant that he was alone with the computer a lot of the time. And also for all of the women that we spoke to, the male partner forced them to do all the housework and all of the parenting. And there's a few reasons for that, but one of them is just to give him as much time as possible to offend. So often the abuse, the violence, the coercion was about forcing her to do all the parenting, all the housework, all the day-to-day -day chores so that he could get up to what he wanted to get up to. There were some other red flags as well, you know, for some of the women that we spoke to. They talked to us and they said, you know, we got married when I was 20 or 22 and I looked young, you know, they, some women said I, I looked, people would say I looked 12 or I looked 13 at 20. So some of these guys appeared to have a preference for a younger looking adult partner. There was often issues with it in their intimate life as well that the women were aware of. Either he wasn't particularly sexually interested in them or he was quite coercive. And for some of the women, you know, there were things happening in the bedroom they were really uncomfortable with. So there was nothing that was a silver bullet that would give a woman certainty that her partner is sexually attracted to children. But certainly some of the women came across, they had concerns about his sexual feelings towards children, but they had nowhere to go. And for women that did speak to a professional about those concerns, they by and large weren't supported. And that included women who had those concerns early on. They were dismissed by professionals and then actually found out later that the their husband had been sexually offending against their kids and making child sexual abuse material of their kids. So. I think that's something for us to be really conscious of, you know, how do we create a space where women who have got these early concerns, you know, he's looking at a lot of porn, I'm concerned about the type of porn he's looking at, I'm concerned about his sexual behaviour and children, where can she go to talk about that? And, and how do you think we're going with that option, with the ability to try and have services that can intervene, can help? Because, I mean, it would be daunting when you're in that position to know exactly what to do and who to turn to. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the Australian government has launched the national strategy to prevent and respond to child sexual abuse. That's got a couple of measures in it that I think would go some way to filling this gap. It includes a service for either men that are concerned about their sexual feelings towards children and a lot of guys who are interested in kids, they know it's wrong, they are worried about it and they do want help. 
So this service can respond to that, give them an action plan to reduce their risk. The service is also intended for people with concern about others as well. So partners, family, friends. And there's also a service that will be funded for non-offending um, family, friends, partners and so on that could potentially do some of that support work early on. But we have to recognise that when women leave relationships because they are either concerned that their partner is a child sex offender or they believe that he's engaged in child sex offences, those women have a really rough time in the family courts. Mm -hmm. And you just need to look at family court judgments where women have well-founded suspicion but where those suspicions haven't been substantiated by an investigation or a prosecution, those suspicions are unlikely to be taken seriously. So it puts her in a really difficult position, especially if she has children and she's worried about the safety of those children. Mm. If she stays with him, you know, is she able to mitigate the risks of those kids? If she leaves, what's the likelihood that she's going to get custody and that his custody is going to be reduced or supervised? It's not good if there hasn't been some sort of substantiation or prosecution. Yeah, mate, it's such, I mean, it's so interesting. We're finding more and more about this. Like you said, it's coming It's coming in the public eye a lot more. We're hearing a lot more about it, which is great in some respects so that we can draw attention to it. But as you look forward into the future, what are you most excited about as it relates to trying to reduce, you know, the child sexual, child sexual abuse material and abuse happening to kids moving forward? What's your hope? Look, I think what the internet has done has made abuse visible. It's made it undeniable. You know, yes, in certain ways it's amplified the problem, but it's also made it impossible for us to ignore. And so, I mean, I'm really excited about the move towards improved victim support. And I think we're seeing a range of services and systems recognised. They do a really bad job by victims and survivors of child sexual abuse material. And I think that's going to change over the next, you know, 10 years, not tomorrow, but over the next 10 years. I think that's exciting. And more broadly, I think we're moving into a more mature discussion with the community and with policymakers around the challenge here. And it is a challenge. And we need to accept that challenge, you know, for as long as we turn away from this because it makes us uncomfortable or makes us feel icky, then the people that pay that price are kids and survivors, basically. You know, the perpetrators are not going to go away just because they make us uncomfortable. So, you know, being able to look this issue in the eye and acknowledge that it's as difficult as it is, I think that's the first step. And the next step is, you know, governments need to be willing to resource the response. And that's a big one because a lot of the action globally in child sexual exploitation in the last five years, ten years, it's actually been philanthropically funded. We've had big billionaire donors who have stepped in and dedicated tens, hundreds of millions of dollars to scaling up our response. And the reason why billionaires are doing it is because governments aren't. Yeah. And there is a there is a financial aspect to this. You know, governments need to build the policy and the service architecture to address this. Or is it just going to keep growing, basically? So I think it's exciting. I think there's lots of possibility. I think there's absolutely political willingness. But the next step is that that investment. Michael, mate, thanks so much for the conversation. If people want to get in touch with you to know more, what's the best way they can do that? Yes, I'm on Twitter for as long as Twitter exists. So <laughs> Mike underscore Salter. Or you can always give me an email. So that's michael.salter at unsw.edu.au.
It's been really interesting chatting to you about this. It's a subject that's important to talk about and something that whilst we don't want to, you don't want to re- recognize or the fact that it's there, it's hard to, hard to stomach. But the fact that there's someone out there doing some really good stuff in this, in this work and certainly trying to help mitigate and reduce this is exciting and, and fingers crossed it keeps going. I just want to thank you for your time, mate, and thanks for your conversation. Thanks, Sam. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share with your friends and colleagues. And if you know someone working in mental health that you'd like to see featured on the podcast, please email any suggestions to us at membership at anzmh.asn.au. You can also stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you next week.